Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. I'm your host, Carl Thomas. So the question is, who was the best boss you ever had? Why? And what did he or she do that resonated so strongly with you? More importantly, how are you applying what you learned? From veteran founders and CEOs to emerging next generation leaders, these men and women talk about their experiences in candid, fun, and insightful conversations. So stay tuned, because the hits just keep on coming. Steve Coonan and I first met back in the late 90s in a conference room on the lot at Universal Studios. He was then the marketing vice president, Coca-Cola. I was the global head of corporate partnerships at Universal, and that meeting was brokered by someone we both knew well, Sandy Kleiman, then a corporate executive vice president at Universal, who had come over from CAA, where a client agency relationship with Coca-Cola had spawned and been growing for years. Suffice it to say, I was the new kid in school, as Steve and Sandy knew each other pretty well. At the time, Universal had an incumbent sponsor in the category, Coke's largest competitor, and Steve's message to me was clear. When that relationship comes to an end, Coke would like a kick at the can, and the rest is history. Coke became our new partner at Universal on Steve's watch, and that relationship between Coca-Cola and Universal Studios is still going strong 20 years on. After leaving Coke in 2000, Steve spent the next 14 years at Turner Media overseeing the cable network portfolio, including TNT and TBS. But his real love is sports. So when the opportunity presented itself in 2014, he became the CEO of the Atlanta Hawks, where he is today. And trust me, folks, he is a force in the NBA leadership. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. Welcome to the podcast. Carl, it's great to be on with you. This is, um, I don't think we would have even known what a podcast was 20 some odd years ago when we first started doing business, but I'm proud that we've kept in touch. Well, as am I, and you're right, podcast is a new word and it did not exist 20 plus years ago. So let's get things started here. You've uh, had a a remarkable career, even before joining Coca-Cola. And over those years, you've you've learned a lot. And since we're on the Best Boss Ever podcast series, I'd love to know, and so would our audience, who was the best boss or bosses or mentors you ever had and what you learned? And then the flip side of that coin is the single biggest thing you may have learned from the worst boss you ever had. Okay, well, well, we'll take it the way that you laid it out, but my answer on the worst is also one of the best. I, I would say the, chairman, the former chairman of Coke, Doug Ivester, had the m- most impact on me. You know, one of the things about boss relationships, mentorship relationships, is sometimes when you're in them, you don't realize what they are. Because when people want to label that kind of, relationship. You're my mentor. That doesn't feel organic. That doesn't feel like people who have common interests coming together. And Doug Ivester is a world-class accountant, all kinds of unique industry-leading skills, but all through the financial lens. And then at Coke, as you're being groomed for more and more success, you have to become an operator. 
And Doug became the president of Coca-Cola USA in the early 90s. And he sat in a meeting with me. I'm not sure he ever saw anything quite like my, my marketing group and said to me, I want you to come to my house every Saturday and teach me marketing. Wow. At 30 something years old, he's the president <laughs> of the company. I have no formal marketing training, but what I had was a lot of audacity, a lot of ideas, but I knew how to tether them to strategy. And we spent days, hours together. I would go to have lunch with him all the time in the chairman's dining room at Coke, which is a very formal place. And I learned from him from osmosis. I learned about leadership, that leaders are voted on every single day. And if you're the head of an organization, you can't have bad days publicly. You have to lead every time you open your mouth. You know, what you say, what you do, everything communicates. We had a saying, everything communicates, what you say, what you don't say, what you do, what you don't do. And that's a universal idea that I've kept with me throughout my career. And as I've led organizations, people watch. And so Doug gave me very keen insights in leadership. And one of the other great mentors I had at Coca-Cola was a marketing leader named Sergio Zeman. And for those of us of a certain age, Sergio's nickname was the Ayacola. He was tough. He was brutal. I like to think of him not as a mentor, but a tormentor. And he would, he would go after you. And he made me learn preparation. He made me understand a lot of positive theories, but also how to treat people. That fear wasn't a great motivator. That, you know, adulation for your boss isn't the way to be successful. And finally, he and I worked together so well, he would say, thank you for my next idea. Which the point was that when you're the head of an organization, the buck stops with you. And so if I have an idea, he's still responsible. And I owe it to him, not only to conceive it, but to execute it. And those are lessons that I've kept with me all my life. Well, kudos to you. Those are basic tenets, although many in leadership positions wouldn't have the awareness that you have to actually put those concepts into practice. But clearly, uh, you were a quick study all along the way, and you've ticked off a couple of individuals who anyone familiar with the history of Coca-Cola, uh, Ivester and Zeman are sort of legendary executives. And, the, and those learnings that you, that you picked up there and, and you took forward, how were those counterbalanced by, let's just call it uh, a, a bad boss or, or a learning experience in the negative that you turned into an attribute and a, and a positive element in your leadership style? I had eight bosses in one year at Coke, and I learned the theory, this too shall pass. And what I always wanted to do was understand what motivation and needs my boss had, and then be able to be my authentic self, but within those parameters. And I had a lot of people who were my boss who wanted, they, they were in it for the land grab, the geography, the kudos, which was fine. 
because it was pretty easy to figure out. But I knew that long term, that behavior wasn't sustainable in the culture of the company. And so that too shall pass, and eight of them in one year, which was quite remarkable. That is remarkable. That ups me by two, because I had six in one year at Universal, which and then was... you know what I'm talking I about. I know exactly what you're talking about. And you're right, this too shall pass, but the boat gets rocky along the way, right? So you've got to sort of roll and oh, yeah. shuck and jive and, and figure it out and, and stay the course. And in that context, um, staying on, on the subject of your experience at Coca-Cola, is there a particular moment, a particular idea? I mean, I, I've known you for a long time, Steve, and your comment about blending audacity and ideas and being able to tether them to strategy is a hallmark of Steve Coonan. So is there one particular moment uh, in, the, in the Coke environment that you could point to as a huge one? Well, it's interesting. I, I had a few, and, and I actually believe when one, somebody's building a career, the way that people are known in an organization, especially big organizations, is you have to own something. You have to accomplish something. There has to be a project that is aligned with you. And one of the early one successes that I had at Coke was doing the Super Bowl halftime in 3D where we sold 26 million pairs of um, Diet Coke 3D glasses and literally created, which has been written about many times, the strangest halftime in the history of the Super Bowl. Um, but at that point in my career, at 31 years old, to be able to take you know, the Super Bowl, which is the hallmark of television's game, and make it a seven-minute Diet Coke commercial at halftime for no money, got me a lot of notice and you know I built from there but every young person I talk to and, and people who are building a career what are you famous for how do I think about you and if I can't think about you in association with an accomplishment or an idea that's kind of problematic and so in building a career and in, in leading people you have to find the people who can step up and own something. And even in, at the Hawks, incredible reinvention, reimagination of our arena, which went from the worst in the NBA to voted the best in the NBA. You know, there's a gentleman who did that for us, that he owned that. And that credibility has helped his career immeasurably. Well, that's that's well said. And uh, it, it, as obvious as it might sound, uh, it's not that obvious. And it's and, and the, I, I think for a young person who, by the way, is our audience here, uh, you young folks who are who are listening to this, it's not only what what might make you famous or what you get known for, but it's the passion, the creativity, the innovation the persistence and the consistency you bring to that idea or concept or project that ultimately carries the day in the end. And Steve, you've been uh, sort of talking about your Coca-Cola background and, and what you've accomplished there and all threaded throughout your Coca-Cola experience is entertainment, whether it's television or music. And when you left Coke in, in 2000, you went directly into the entertainment industry with Turner Media, uh, where you oversaw the entire cable network portfolio. 
So the same question now around Turner. You spent 14 years there. And if you look back on that experience, is there a thing, a moment, quote unquote, where Steve Coonan owns a piece of the Turner media history? Well, I, I think there was. I want to be clear. When I say famous, I'm not talking about press famous. Right. I'm talking about you could work at a 10-person accounting firm, but you landed the Jones account or you figured out a way to get somebody, you know, a refund. So I'm not talking about New York Times and Wall Street Journal. I'm talking about accomplishments within an organization. Successful organizations have milestones and, you know, put it in the entertainment vernacular, it. Right. And thanks for the, thanks for that clarification. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, my, my daughter works for a sustainability company and created a podcast that for a week was number one on Apple's business podcast. That's remarkable. That's owning something. Love that. That's what I'm talking about. So I got the Turner because of a strategic need. In 2000, cable was doing the opposite of what it's doing now. It was exploding. There were 50 million households who had cable, but cable till that time had been this hodgepodge of music and shopping channels. It didn't really have brands. And then here comes the Food Network, the History Channel, Comedy Central. And all of a sudden, as there's more choice, brands always win. And so the leadership at Turner had PBS and TNT, which were named for the creator, not the one above us all in the sky, but Ted Turner. So where if somebody is running a commercial for the History Channel, you kind of got a clue what's going to be there. If you're an advertiser and you want to talk to an audience, you know, that loves history, you kind of know where to go. If you're a cable operator and you want to make sure that you have broad choice, because that's how cable was sold, that's all the availability, all the choice, having something dedicated to history while niche was also added to your portfolio. So TBS and TNT were really kind of one and the same. They were known as T1 and T2 in the industry. They had no definition. They had no differentiation. So cable operators were saying, why am I paying you for both? Pick one. And so there was a strategic imperative at Turner to make TBS and TNT brands. And so that's why I got hired. It wasn't for entertainment or television or production or anything having to do with it. But ironically, it was to build these TV networks that were kind of cloudy in the consumer and Madison Avenue and cable operator eyes and make them consumer brands. And that's what we did. TNT first, we launched with We Know Drama in 2001 and used a plethora of stars to define drama. Drama was television that made people think and feel that touched their hearts and minds. So those were the research words. We used our own vernacular to create We Know Drama because we felt that was something that we could own. In the vast array of TV channels, nobody said they were an expert in drama. And it was wildly successful. TNT moved from the six-rated cable channel in 2000 to, by 2002, it was the number one network for six years in a row. And we did the same thing 
with TBS, it made it a comedy station. And I'll talk about the irony of that in a second. But we made TBS very funny. And we filled it with the greatest lineup of comedy. Seinfeld, The Office, Everybody Loves Raymond, Big Bang Theory, on and on and on that's ever been on television. And when you look today, the most popular shows on Netflix and Hulu and now, you know, Disney Plus and HBO Max, it's those tried and true comedies that um, become people's Prozac, if you will, at the end of the day. So we were able to differentiate both TBS and TNT, bring a distinctive and different audience to them, and then grow the revenue from $1.7 billion in 2000 to almost $8 billion when I left in 2014 because they were absolutely differentiated. Delivered different audiences, delivered a different mix of advertisers, and hence the verticalization just grew and grew and grew. Correct. That's awesome. So you left Turner, and I want to spend a little bit of time with the Hawks because it's where you are now. I mentioned at the top that you are a force among the leadership uh, in the NBA, not just overseeing the Hawks and the, the now number one arena in the NBA. So how did you get there? And give us a little bit of an imprimatur on your style and, and if you will, the, the moments in your Hawks experience to date, because you're not going anywhere anytime soon. Let's talk Hawks. Well, I was having a dinner with another couple and my wife in the spring of 2014 and the other couple we were having were minority investors in the Hawks. And they said to me, could you help us find a CEO for the team? I've been a season ticket holders for the Hawks for 27 years. And candidly, they were a disappointment to me as a franchise. I, I love the sport. Turner used to own the team, but we used it as cheap programming rather than investing in building community and, and a lot of the elements that you have to build to build a, a real championship franchise in your market. And this was right when you could kind of see the tea leaves that the consumer was demanding more choice. And cord cutting had really started to get some traction. And I looked at where I was in life, that I had been there for 14 years, had, you know, really gone after and led the charge for cable as the equivalent of broadcast, had seen that vision come to life, both in awards and revenue, where cable programmers were the Wall Street darlings. And it was the, the value that, you know, Comcast buying NBC Universal for the cable channels and AT&T buying Time Warner for the cable channels. But I could feel that after 14 years, there wasn't a whole lot to do. And I am so fortunate to have built a decent career in my hometown. The idea of running and being an equity partner in a local sports team was a dream come true. So it didn't take me long. We negotiated a deal in nine days, and I announced it, and I felt terrible. I shocked my folks at Turner and a lot of people in the industry, but I felt this was the right thing for me and my family and my city. I believe a sports team 
is the most powerful voice in the marketplace. Might be an outrageously statement, but if you think about it, we have multiple radio stations dedicated to sports, a section of the newspaper dedicated to sports. Every broadcast TV news has a segment on sports. And I think you just saw in this recent election what athletes and teams can do to unite people better than any policy or politician. And I wanted to be part of that in my hometown. Well, there are a lot of folks who are glad you did. And the the passion that you bring to everything you do, but in particular to the Hawks, is, I think, noteworthy. And it's on its way to sort of being legendary. And I, I've long felt this. And my career background in sports is actually longer and deeper than the entertainment industry. But there are two fundamental if you will, content pillars that transcend geography, language, culture, socioeconomic, political, and any other barrier you might choose to to put up there. It's sports and it's music. And those two things on a global basis resonate all day, every day with the entire population who has access to consume that content. And they make their choices, obviously. But no, you're, you're 100% right. And I am living in San Diego. And as you know, we have systematically lost sports teams uh, every few years for the last 20. At one point, San Diego did have an NBA team. They are now the Clippers in L.A., you, everyone is familiar with the Chargers story. They're now the L.A. Chargers. We've managed to hold on to the Padres. And, and really, that's because a brand new stadium was built downtown. And it has become, other than, you know, San Diego State football, the core sporting presence here in the city of San Diego. And I think this the city is is the less for it. Although I think, you know, in the same breath, Padres are beneficiaries of that. So I completely agree with your comment that the sports franchises in a major city stand the test of time and they galvanize and unite communities in a disparate and unifying way, right? Absolutely. I mean, think of the amount of media that just covers these different markets and what we're able to see. And I mean, I live in Georgia as far from San Diego as you can get, but I know Petco Park and all the cool stuff around it, you know, and that matters. Sports has drawn Atlanta. We're the ninth biggest city in North America now and would have never there without the biggest sort of all the Olympics being here and our local teams being on a national stage on a constant basis. So that opportunity was just too good to say no to. And I'm glad that I did it. And it's stunning to me that Turner was a business that literally, in economic terms, is almost 30 times bigger than what we're doing now. But in a visibility terms, this is a thousand times bigger. The dichotomy, right? The power of sports and the sporting franchise and the community that embraces it. That's just such an awesome analysis. Thanks for that, Steve. So listen, with the few minutes that we have left, I do three regular features on every podcast, and you get to sign up for, for all three of those because you're, you're our guest today. So the first one is an homage and an ode to Sheryl Crow, one of my favorite female artists. She wrote an awesome song called My Favorite Mistake. So the question for Steve Coonan is, as you look back over your career, what was your favorite mistake, the one you learned the most from 
took away from and how that mistake has shaped where you are today? You know, I get asked that question a lot. And if you're trying and doing, you're going to make mistakes. And I don't look at mistakes as negative. I look at mistakes of aggression as positive, mistakes of stupidity or sloppiness as a negative. And so when I swing and miss, I give myself credit for swinging. I would say not understanding the power of Google in 1998 might be my biggest mistake ever. Wow. You want to elaborate on that a little bit? I do. So I'm a voracious reader. I read everything I can get my hands on. I still probably read five, six hours a day because that's where I get inspiration and connections for ideas. And so I'm reading a newspaper at my desk at Coke. I think it might have been the New York Times. And they talked about how the moon had moved six inches closer to Earth. And I found that idea just really intriguing. How would they know that? Did somebody have a tape measure that big that I could look at? Was it a telescope? How would you know that? And so I read the article. It was written by a professor or being interviewed by a professor from the University of Texas, El Paso. And I got on the phone with the guy and said, how do you know that the moon has actually moved closer to Earth? And he said, oh, it's not that difficult. We shoot a laser. We measure it. It refracts back. We measure everything. And I said, well, when you shoot a laser at the moon, does it do any damage or leave a mark? Or can you see it? And it's like, yeah, you can see it with a telescope. So I said to him, what if on New Year's Eve 1999, getting ready for the millennial, we get a whole field of lasers and we put a Coke logo on the moon? He said, I think we could do that. So I went to my mentor, Doug Ivester, and explained what a global company like Coca-Cola, only Coca-Cola, to put its logo on the moon, wishing everybody a brand new turn of the century. That said, I love it. Can you make it happen? I said, I think I can. I said, I need some money. And he gave me some money. So I spent weeks with scientists who thought I was from outer space, trying to figure out how to create this matrix and build a logo on the moon. Make a long story short, the FAA shut us down because we basically would have put up enough laser power to probably cut any plane that flew through it in half. So it got shelved. And I never thought about it again. And then in the early 2000s, once Google was able to bring any and every article up, Doug Ivester had been interviewed in 1999 by Forbes magazine on the cover story, and he talked about dynamic ideas and the culture he built of outrageous ideas and talked about me wanting to put a logo on the moon. And as I was building my career at Turner and was doing more press and press would Google me, unfortunately, this came up. So for years, I was the guy who tried to put a logo on the moon. Fast forward to 2014, I'm pleased to say that NASA projected the Mona Lisa on the moon with lasers. So I was 16 years ahead of my time, but it was, you know, again, try anything, try everything, have a reason for trying it. 
and learning from your mistake. Well, if that doesn't epitomize audacity, a wild idea clearly created to a global branding strategy at Coca-Cola, I don't know what does. That's as good a story as I've ever heard. But the lesson is, you leave a fingerprint now, a digital fingerprint, and anything, everything you do. Right. And by the way, you're searchable, right? You're searchable. Oh, yeah. So if you want to be known for trying to advertise on the moon, somebody's going to find it 20 years later. Yep. Yep. Two quick bites left, Steve. Your favorite female artist or band in the music industry? My favorite female artist or band in the music industry? You know, I, I just watched a um, documentary on the Go-Go's, which was really interesting, even though I wouldn't say they're my favorite. I think it probably would be Stevie Nicks. Interesting. And it's probably just because of the TikTok video that makes it top of mind. Right. Well, she was and is a superpower in, in the world of female singers. Uh, and we all sort of remember how she came to the fore, but that's a great call. And I will post that, by the way. Lastly, words matter. You spoke at the outset how everything you say, you don't say as a leader. What you do, what you don't do as a leader is watched and, and cataloged. And so words do matter. And I'd like you to share with us your favorite word, if there is one, and why. And please put it in context. My favorite word is yes because it gives you permission to try and it's positive and it's affirmative and it's easy to spell. And it's easy to spell and it matters. Yes, it does. Steve, that it, it, this has been a great half hour. Hard to imagine. We've already been on the horn here for a half an hour, but I want to thank you so much for carving out this, this piece of your day. I know there are matters at hand, across everything that you are doing. And I just want to say thank you so much for being a part of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. Well, Carl, thank you for thinking of me. It's a real honor and pleasure to do this with you. I enjoyed it. And hopefully somebody will glean something out of um, what we just did. And if it helps one person, then we did good. Agree with that. And trust me, they will. Thank you, my friend. Be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google, Pandora, and many others. Please visit our website at thebestbossever.com where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Until next week, remember, words matter. Words matter.